We start off with this quote. This is from a podcast called Hidden Forces with your boss, Gavin Schmidt. All right. Um, and I, it's out of context, but it, it holds its constitution. In the podcast, the host said, one can argue that in the future, it may be much more valuable to have water to use as sustainable edible food as opposed to wine crops. What's your take on that? Well, it kind of depends on where you are, right? I mean, France and Italy, very few vineyards are actually irrigated. So you're not really taking water away from wine. I think places like California, and this is kind of not wine specific, but this is more kind of agriculture. I mean, agriculture you know, is about 70% of the, is, accounts for 70% of the water consumption in, in California. So you kind of take agriculture out of the equation and there's plenty of water for everybody. And so, you know, when you kind of like think about adaptation and, and kind of dealing with droughts and, and, and climate change, you know, you need to start thinking about, you know, these sorts of places where, you know, maybe water needs to be valued a bit higher than it used to be. And maybe we need to make some harder decisions about how we want to use that water. So how do you go about knowing that in your position? <clears throat> I mean, you don't, you know, that's a kind of values judgment. Right. You've I mean, got some satellite stuff, looks at groundwater, looks at all these things. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can tell you how much water, you know, we can tell you what's happening to the water. And we can tell you kind of where it is and where it's disappearing. But we can't tell you what you should use that water for. Is it better for L.A. to have water or is it better for the Imperial Valley to have water? You know, that's not something that can be kind of quantified. So when, when James Conway writes his Napa at last light book talking about how Napa is kind of at the end of their resources. Is there some validity to that? Do you think for Napa Valley? Uh, I don't know about Napa specifically, but, but certainly for agriculture in California, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, the only reason they can have those agricultural economies is because they can use water from the Colorado river or they can use water stored from the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountains. They're basically farming in deserts that are okay to farm in because you can add water to the landscape and and you know provide that that moisture that the crops otherwise wouldn't have. So as long as there's plenty of water that you can reroute around, then yeah, things are things are great. But once the availability declines, then you start to create kind of conflicts across stakeholders and discussions and decisions need to be made about who gets the water and, and how do things get prioritized. So you're a wine lover. I am a wine lover. I learned this last night at dinner, the hard way. <laughs> you can hang with the big boys, my friend. Oh, thank you. So how, how did you um, how did you get on the, the subject of wine? And I, I really want to hear about what you're doing with wine now. So, you know, for about the last 10 to 15 years, I've just recreationally really liked wine and began to kind of appreciate wine for its own kind of unique nature compared to spirits or beer or, or anything like that. And the other thing that kind of like fascinated me and, and kind of provided an avenue to kind of marry my professional life with one of my hobbies, maybe, uh, is the fact that, you know, wine almost more than any other agricultural commodity or crop out there is very much tied to weather, climate and the environment. Climate is a kind of fundamental part of terroir. It's part of what makes Burgundy, you know, Burgundy or the Willamette Valley, the Willamette Valley. And so there's kind of a clear climate change connection there. And, and in recent years, it's something I've been exploring to try to understand a little bit more and, and see if we can find some new ways to look at how climate change might affect wine production or, or the ability to grow different grapes in, in different regions as the climate shifts beyond what you know, these regions have historically experienced. Sure, NASA scientist, PhD with an emphasis specifically in drought. How did you kind of hook up to the plant phenology situation? Where did that tie-in come from? Yeah, so actually before I joined NASA, I had, I had done a couple research projects on plant phenology. Okay. So, uh, you know, focused on kind of natural species. So there's a kind of resort and preserve in, in New Paltz of the Hudson Valley called uh, Mohonk. And uh, they've actually been recording plant phenology for decades. And so, you know, I published, you know, several papers, you know, using that data set to look at how climate change is affecting the timing of, of plants in the spring. And, you know, when I was able to, to hook up with, uh, you know, colleagues like Lizzie Wolkovich, I was able to kind of transfer that, that kind of expertise and apply it to wine. Wine has certain phenological phases as part of their development over the growing season. 
One that we've kind of really keyed into is verasion, you know, which is really tied to harvest dates in a lot of in a lot of areas. Um, you know, the kind of the ripening of the grapes, and you know that's kind of useful because a lot of these vineyards keep very detailed harvest records, and so it gives us a way to kind of uh, you know take this information, look at it over decades, and you know, in the case of France, even centuries, compile that data, compare it to climate, and see how harvest dates you know, which is going to be a proxy for, you know, variation have varied over time uh, and how that's connected to, you know, what the climate system is doing. How will that information be used? Will it be used in a predictive way or just in an analytical way to say this is what's happening and this is kind of where this is going? I think it can be both. You know, the fact is that different varieties have different climate sensitivities. Pinot Noir is better adapted for, you know, cooler climates compared to like a San Giovese or a Cabernet Sauvignon. And so if we can use this phenology information to try to figure out within a given region which grape varieties are will be best adapted to the future climate. You know, I think it's the information that can be used for for adaptation. Wine, particularly in places like France and Italy, is just so part of the cultural DNA that you know Burgundy, Bordeaux, Loire Valley, they're they're never gonna stop growing grapes and making wine, no matter what the climate system does. But Maybe the current grape varieties that they're growing now are not the best varieties for the future. And so a lot of what we're trying to work on is figure out, well, what would be, from a climate perspective anyway, the best varieties for those areas going into the future. From what I've seen on the ground level, producers are making adjustments basically in the vineyard. For instance, yeah, certain areas, if you're just on, let's say, a south-facing slope, um, and traditionally you've planted some of these vineyards thinking you want the best possible sun exposure southwest now they're adding north facing sites that they never thought would ever ripen Mm -hmm. can some of these warming trends be mitigated in that way or at least not mitigated but adapted in that way oh yeah i think so i mean you know a lot of these wine growing areas have complex topography, right? You know, you go to some place like Tuscany, right? Which is all kind of like, you know, hills with different aspects and and slopes. And so, yeah, I mean, I think at the micro level, there's a lot of potential to, to deal with some of these changes by just kind of shifting where even within the vineyard you're, you're planting the grapes. The question is, is there kind of a hard limit? Like with climate change, are these kind of shifts taking advantage of the kind of microclimate enough to completely deal with climate change or is it just kind of going to be a delaying tactic if you're just kind of using the same varieties that you've always been doing the first thing i think about when you talk about that is california because the economics are so intense i mean i I don't think of i can't really think of any state top to bottom where especially in the major regions land prices are as high as they are so economically, a lot of these adjustments sound great on paper, but what does that really look like when you're trying to pencil it out? No, and, and you know, look, I I can't make these recommendations. You know, yeah. you know, winemakers, vineyard owners, they know the kind of details better than I ever could. You know, the most I can do is try to provide some information. Well, certainly, and if you we know. decide to continue to to plant new vineyards, I think that that this research has the potential to be incredibly valuable. I want to start really with with home. I'm I'm a California native. I live in Napa currently. I've lived in Santa Barbara for quite some time before that. What are we dealing with with climate change in California? There's a specific area of study with you. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's a few things that California is going to have to really deal with. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, California has an extended summer dry season. At least outside the mountains, you know, you're not getting any rainfall between April and October. You know, it means a couple of things. So, you know, one, it means much, much hotter summers during a time period when there's effectively no rainfall. And so that means greater heat stress on plants, you know, whether it's natural ecosystems or vineyards or, or crops. It means greater evaporative demand, you know, so greater water stress as well, you know, on plants. It also means higher likelihood of fires. And, uh, you know, in the wintertime, climate change likely means more rain and less snow. You know, that can be a problem because during the wintertime, you know, most of the reservoirs are operated for flood control. 
liquid water is kind of allowed to kind of pass through. But then historically, the way they've been operated is come April, they close the gates to capture all the snow melt coming down off the Sierra Nevada mountains. And that water that's captured by the, uh, that snow melt that's captured by the reservoirs becomes the water that gets used um, during the summertime. But if you don't have that snow that's going to store that water, right, if it's all coming down as rainfall, then you still have to manage for flood control, and that water kind of gets lost and, and wasted. Is there indication in climate change that alpine areas are going to continue to suffer? In other words, is the snowpack going to get worse? Yeah, I mean, there have been a few studies that have, have you know, I've demonstrated already that during recent drought years in California and Pacific Northwest that the snowpack was much lower than it would have been normally because of, of climate change. Snow is a very nonlinear thing. Below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, you have snow. Above 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that all turns to rain. And that's when you can start melting things. And you so, make it look easy, Ben. Um, <laughs> thanks. So you don't even need to, you don't, you don't even need to, to warm up that much right. to have an impact. You just need to warm up enough to get above that threshold to start to have a big impact. How bad are fires going to get? I mean, 17 was a monster. And to have it in December. You know, it's a couple of things, you know, that are happening. One, you know, basically, if you have the vegetation on the ground, you know, that's your fuel. So if you have the grasses, the chaparral, that sort of stuff. If it's really warm and you're not getting rainfall, then that's going to dry out that fuel and that's going to make it very easy for fires to get very, very big. And that's the kind of climate change side of the story. But the other flip side is that more and more people are living in these fire-prone ecosystems because the coast especially is so expensive. You know, people are building cities and housing communities, you know, you know, in the chaparral, you know, in these grasslands. And so they're just, the exposure to these fires when they do occur increases. And also the chance of ignition you know, increases as well, right? So I think I think last year, like one of the fires started from, from sparks from a um, you know a power line. It's interesting because it's double whammy. So one one aspect of it is the fires themselves, obviously for life, but and to a lesser extent, vineyards. Vineyards typically don't burn, you know, unless there's dry grasses left in the vineyards, which is are, are more rare occasions. People usually are pulling grass and tilling. But in terms of smoke taint. That, oh, yeah. that is a major, major problem. And truthfully, it's, it's not anything we're prepared to deal with because you just, you lose that vintage if it happens. There's not a lot you can do. Yeah, I know. Or I have a friend who, who knows a winemaker in Sonoma. And in the contract, it, it's like, if they're smoke tainted, then we don't have to buy them. And that's exactly what happened. You know, last year, the fire came through, spared most of the property, but the smoke tainted these grapes and... You know, he it's, lost. A, it's a constant battle. Even even the fires in Mendo, you just you know you see ash in your car in Napa, so you're wow. just, you, you're you're wondering you know based on where the winds are blowing, fires that may be twenty, thirty, forty miles away can severely impact mm-hmm. wine that's either sitting on the vine or potentially in barrel if the fire's close enough. Mm-hmm. So obviously a big battle in terms of warming. What do you see happening to grapes in Northern California. So we, we talked about ways we can adapt, you know, leave more canopy cover, find cooler sites, you know, North facing sites, but is there an expiration date on things like Cabernet in Napa? You know, I don't know that we have a definitive answer yet, but there's some suggestion that, yeah, there could be like at a certain level of warming, it just might be too hot, at least to get the kind of quality that you want. I mean, anybody can make two buck chuck kind of you know, anywhere. Right. I mean, and you know, you could, if that's all you care about in terms of wine, then sure. You could probably keep doing that in Napa, Sonoma, you know, outside of Santa Barbara kind of forever. But you know, if you're going for the kind of high value wines, then yeah, I think there's a, there's a, a strong potential for it just to be too hot to really get good quality caps off in, in some of these places. Do you have like a, a modeled out time frame where that would look really bad for Cabernet? So we don't have a time frame, but the way we actually kind of assessed it was to look at, uh, or we're assessing it, is to look at temperature thresholds. So basically, what happens in a world that's two degrees warmer, and what happens in a world that's kind of four degrees warmer? Now we're talking. 
you know, which I think is kind of a is a kind of a, a better way to kind of frame a lot of this stuff, right. you know, because um, then you're you're not worried about some, any kind of artificial time horizon. You're thinking about like, right. you know, what the temperature is going to be. You know, I think in from what I remember in both cases, Capsol becomes not ideal in Napa. In the lower warming case, though, there's other grape varieties that can kind of come in. You can kind of exploit that diversity and still kind of maintain good quality kind of wine production in, in Napa. But it just won't be the kind of classic Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, that Napa is known for. You, know, you see similar things in our analyses. That's at two degrees? Yeah. So at two degrees, there's flexibility to exploit the kind of diversity of wine grapes, you know, and to find new varieties to kind of plug in. When's you know, a conservative estimate of when two degrees is going to hit us? Uh, I mean, I think two degrees. So, you know, we're probably about one degree right now. You know, I think probably like mid-century. 2050. 2050. You know, it's probably a reasonable time horizon if we kind of continue on the kind of pace we're going that we would expect to see a, a kind of two-degree so world. So this is a, yeah. So a business-as-usual assessment yeah. with carbon emissions would put it at 2050. I mean, if we stopped it right now... Like there's some inertia in the system, so we'd still, we'd probably kind of warm up a little bit more over the next 10 years, you know, maybe a few tenths of a degree. And so, you know, I guess we, in a world where we did that, we could probably prevent kind of two degrees. But the way these things kind of happen, I think it's, you know, I think it's probably a foregone conclusion that we're going to be over two degrees. What do you see happening in Oregon? Now we're dealing mainly with the bread and butter Chardonnay and Pinot to to a lesser extent Chardonnay, but a lot of Pinot. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, so, you know, uh, Pacific Northwest, including the Willamette Valley, like, the climate's a bit different, but in some ways it's kind of the same deal. You know, relatively dry summers compared to the winters. You know, obviously a bit of a cooler climate, but again, that's another area that, you know, where, um, you know, forest or fires, you know, wildfires are, are an issue, you know, and are likely to be a continued issue into the future. Is at two degrees is Pinot Noir tenable? Probably not. Same for Burgundy. Again, I'd say tenable in the sense that yeah, you could grow it, but it will no longer be a climate that will be ideally suited for something like Pinot Noir. And again, to be clear, this is just a kind of you know, this is just the climate, right? I mean, obviously, there's other things that go into it, like the kind of soil and and you know, and even like cultural you know inertia, right? Sure. And so. I'm not making a recommendation that people stop growing Pinot Noir in, you know, in Burgundy, you know, or in, or in the Willamette Valley, but. You know, there's, there's radical steps being taken everywhere. People are starting to plant Syrah in places that, in Sonoma that they never thought they would. Um, do you think as we look at the West Coast, it, it, are you in a better position the further West you are in terms of this moderating versus inland? I think so, at least in terms of the extreme heat. Like as soon as you get away, you know, when you're on the coast, the best example, right, is like the Bay Area. You know, it can be like almost 20 degrees colder in San Francisco, right on the ocean versus like the East Bay, Berkeley, kind of right. Oakland. And so, yeah, so the, the ocean is a, is a major kind of moderator. And so I think those sorts of places, the kind of coastal places will probably be able to deal with things a little bit better, at least in terms of the extreme heat. So if that's the sort of thing that you're concerned about, then that's the place where you want to be planting vines. I mean, one of the great things about wine, which I think opens up a lot of opportunities for adaptation, is just the diversity of varieties that are out there that can be exploited. You know, a lot of the the stuff that got exported from Europe, I mean, most of these areas, right? Like, it's all planted by, like, 12 varieties. Pinot Noir, like, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, Chardonnay, etc. Those are the kind of grapes that got exported, you know, to the New World and to Australia and South America. You know, particularly in like Southern Europe, there's hundreds of varieties, you know, that don't have a very, that aren't planted widely, but potentially have the kind of diversity that could make them a tool for, you know, helping the wine industry move into a world that's, that's much, much warmer. Uh, you know, particularly in, you know, in, in Italy where, you know, a lot of these are very hot grape varieties. And so those are the ones that, you know, are probably going to do best in a, in, in a warmer world. And taking it back, I'm I, sorry I didn't put a button on the, the Oregon thing. Are, are you saying that, that not only heat but drought pressure will get stronger in Oregon, where, which, like, 
I can't even picture that place not rainy. Yeah, I mean, and you've actually seen this the last like few summers. Is there's been you know some pretty sizable droughts in the Pacific Northwest. It was a um, brutal summer for rain this year in the Willamette Valley. Brutal. Yeah, and you know, like a, a couple of years ago, they had another big summer drought, and and it was so hot that you know, like a lot of farms, just get away from wine a little bit. A lot of farms like kind of stagger their crops so that as they're you know as the crops develop and as they finish harvesting one set, they move on to the next one. But it was so hot that everything kind of came in at once, and so you know, there's there's fruit rotting in the field, you know, because they just don't have the manpower to actually harvest everything because everything is coming in. At the same time, yeah. Instead of being nicely, instead of being staggered, and so yeah. So you know, Pacific Northwest is another place like that's going to have to deal with with drought. Is it as simple as this, like you know, little Tetris shift to where Baja Mexico becomes Southern California, Southern California starts to become Northern California, Northern California starts to become Oregon, and it just kind of moves up that way? Are you seeing this like northern progression with this? Yeah, I mean, so on a, on a basic level, I think. I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, this idea of just kind of like a northward progression of the kind of current regions and, and, and grapes. But obviously that's like a kind of broad brush view that's for sure. That's complicated by like, you're not going to be planting grapes everywhere in Oregon. Like you're going to be planting them in the Willamette Valley. But is it reasonable to assume that like Washington and Napa, perhaps part of Oregon will be very much suited to let's say, riper grapes like Cabernet, Syrah, et cetera. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, in fact, I think climate change, I mean, maybe one of the good things is that it, it has the potential to open up new areas that have not been known for kind of high-quality wine. So yeah. southern England, you know, probably has a lot of potential uh, in the future to grow, like high-quality, you know, Pinot, potentially. Uh, Tasmania and Australia, right, yeah. is another place where, you know, it's a little bit too kind of cold and wet throughout the year, but if things warm up, things dry out a little bit, you get a little bit more heating during the summertime, during the growing season, then there's probably a lot of areas of Tasmania that would be really ideally suited for, you know, for some of these, uh, some of these grapes that right now are grown on the mainland of Australia. It's, it's really interesting to think of it, the globe from north to south. I mean, obviously, you guys talk about um, heat intensifying more at the poles, right? Especially with... with at the North Pole. Right. Is where we've seen that. Okay. So, but in terms of like northerly latitudes above 50 degrees, let's say, is there that rapid acceleration of heat or are they fairly moderated? Uh, I mean, so yeah, so that's, you know, where we see the highest warming rates in the world yeah. are these high northern latitudes above, basically, like you said, above like 50 degrees north. What's happening at the equator? You know, so much of the equator is so wet. So it's going to stay wet, but just like hot with humid yeah More which hot. yeah i mean certainly yeah so so you know there's a lot of moisture there which means that the humidity is likely to to increase when i think about this i think about the canary islands because and they're not technically equatorial but they are below the 30th <coughs> parallel and they are one of the only like tremendous up and coming wine regions tremendous at that latitude um, and so you're, you're on a par with Sonora, Mexico, and you're, you're 80 miles east of the, or west of the Sahara Desert, and you have this crazy push-pull with, you know, African heat on the east side of the island and severe drought. And then on, on the north, north side, really, but northwest, you have this rain cloud and northernly cool winds that gets trapped by a volcano in the middle of it. But there is this push and pull between Sahara and those cooler northerly winds. What are they likely up against in these scenarios? Yeah, I mean, so there it gets, I think, a little bit more complicated. And I think a lot of this stuff might be, I think a place like the Canary Islands might be a bit protected, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, they have this kind of extreme topography that you know, in many cases can kind of separate that kind of cool northerly flow from the kind of hot African flow. You know, the other thing that I have going for them is that they're in the ocean. Right. And that's going to help kind of modulate everything. You know, I mean, I haven't looked specifically at the Canary Islands, but, you know, my first instinct would be that, you know, this could be a place that, you know, is a little bit more resilient than a few of these other places because it's so kind of oceanic, 
you know, that that's going to help kind of insulate it from, you know, some of the more extreme things that we expect it to hit other areas. It's a trip being there too, because you, you're, you're on the <coughs> nor- North shore and maybe at like two to three kilometers from the ocean, it starts dramatically getting higher in elevation. You're at like six or 700 meters, maybe three kilometers from, from the ocean, from sea level. And so it starts to go up and then there's wine planted above the inversion layer, which has this weird thing where it's a lot cooler at night, but it's a crazy diurnal shift. And Mm -hmm. so it'll be a lot warmer during the day. Do you think if anybody's going to get hit, it's going to be above that inversion layer at higher altitude? Yeah. I mean, so I can see potentially that inversion layer shifting up or down, you know, depending on how some of these other dynamics kind of shift. So, you know, there's a case where you can kind of get these threshold effects. Obviously, things are very different above versus below that inversion layer. And so if you start to move that boundary up or down, and that could have a kind of uh, that could have a big impact. And again, it's just, you know, I don't know enough about the Canary Islands to really say like definitively what I what I think is going to happen. I might be able to help that research. Let's do this, man. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful place. So I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Beaujolais and let's talk about Ribera Soccer because they're linked in this weird way. So Beaujolais um, just south of Burgundy. It's been hit by hail two years in a row where specific villages like Fleury and Morgone, some producers lost basically everything two years in a row. Um, is this a sign of the times, you know, with, with hail and certainly in Ribera Sacra, the last four out of five years, they've been having hail and they've been having it late in the season, like at the end of summer, which has never been traditional really for them. So uh, the, the vines are planted goblet, which is like this gnarly kind of basket goblet shaped Mm -hmm. training system. So you can't have hail nets. It's not manicured that way where you can have like thin trellis hail Mm -hmm. nets to prevent against this stuff. So there's really not a lot of ways to safeguard against it, especially with these old, Mm -hmm. often, um, hundred, eighty to a hundred year old vines. So, you know, what generates hail are severe thunderstorms. You can kind of ask the question, well, how do those sorts of events, how do we expect them to change with, with climate change? And, you know, I think broadly we expect those, we expect the intensity of these sorts of storms to get worse or to get more intense. You, know, you have a warmer, more energetic atmosphere. And so, as I said before, you're, you're basically kind of supercharging the hydrologic cycle. Yeah, right? I think this reminds me of a, a <coughs> TED talk with the former director of, of NASA, um, Jim Hansen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he said something effective. Um, weather anomaly 50 years ago would happen two to three tenths of a land, two to three tenths of a percent of a land area. Today it's 10%. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's kind of one way that we can kind of look at these, you know, to see if these things are actually, are actually changing. And for example, in the Eastern US, there's a clear trend towards more of these intense precipitation events. And so, you know, if you're you know, in a kind of area that kind of gets these things right. normally, then yeah, then I would expect that with warming, like you, they, you know, they should happen. You're probably going to get them more more often than you did in the past. Are the are the hail events going to be in more unpredictable times of the year and bigger hail? I mean, I don't know about the size of the hail, um, but I mean, to the extent that you know, if you if you want to get these to get these thunderstorms, you need a lot of heating at the surface. You need a lot of moisture, you need a lot of energy from the sun, you just basically need to boil up these these clouds and, and these sorts of storms. So they really only happen in the summertime. You know, if your summer's getting longer, you know, if that same kind of conditions, really humid, really warm, that normally stops in August, but now extends into September. Uh, I didn't uh, even think about it that way. Then, you know, yeah, that can mean that like your storm season becomes longer. Mm. I want to talk about a region called the Savoie. This is really interesting. So we're, we're French Alps. I mean, so you're basically in <clears throat> the French version of Julie Andrews twirling around, you know, in the sound of music, but beautiful place. They traditionally not had a huge import presence in, in the United States, but they sold a lot of their wine to ski resorts. Now the, the season in Chamonix and all these beautiful posh resorts is, 
narrower and narrower and narrower, I think by 35 days reduced since the seventies. And so a lot of the businesses there are moving to like, you know, spa resort type right. models. How, how do you, number one, I don't want, I don't need you to comment on the, the economic effect of that, but what are Alpine regions like that, which is also a water source on all sides? Um, what are they up against? Yeah, I mean, I mean, saying this is here in Nevada. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's 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 very similar. It's you know, but maybe more intense because you're you're at a higher latitude, right? I mean, you're definitely versus Northern California. Yeah, but I think I think that it's the same kind of fundamentals, right? Which is like, if it's above freezing, yeah. So you know, these systems, including like the people that live there and the species that live there, and the kind of water resources generated for the last. Several thousand years, they've all been tuned around what the snowpack is doing. And, you know, what we're seeing is a shift towards, well, mostly warmer temperatures that are really fundamentally changing the snowpack. And, you know, we can see this as well in, like, the retreat of alpine glaciers across the world, including in Europe and the U.S. and and various various other places. And so, so yeah, I mean, you know, these mountain areas, because of the fact that when you're talking about snow, you really are talking about this kind of threshold or tipping point. Like, you know, these are places where you can see these very clear kind of impacts that, you know, are going to require adjustments, you know? So like, you know, here in the Eastern U.S., a lot of these ski resorts are developing summer programs like mountain biking trails and, and things like that to try to attract people in the off season because, you know, the snow is not as good quality or, the snow season is too short compared yeah. to what it used to be, and so they can't they can't make what they need to just on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in the on the other side in Austria, not far from the Alps, and there's a river valley about a um, hour drive west of Vienna called the Vaca, which is premier country for Riesling and Gruner Veltliner. And I have a producer down there, and we, we, you know, we talk from time to time with his mentor Peter Malberg, is and it's just what he said to me is man like like the snow just gets less and less and less each year though the winters are evaporating we're starting to plant it's starting to get really really hot especially along the danube which is like in river valleys it's like a giant heat trap mm. so people are planting on north facing sites now in areas they they weren't before. I mean, is it just kind of more of the same for them? And specifically, these there's a few of these river valleys. Ribera Sacro would be one. The Rhone Valley, uh, at least the northern Rhone Valley, would be another. And the Vaca is kind of similar in its uh, blueprint. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, the one thing we're probably most confident in in terms of climate change is temperature. Yeah. Right? I mean, those are some very basic physics. I'm beating a dead horse, aren't I? Yeah, you know, but it, but it's fine. But I think it's worth pointing out, right? Like, you know, you can quibble a little bit about like precipitate, like rainfall patterns and things like that. But right. you know, the one thing that we know is happening, and we know is going to continue to happen, is it's getting warmer, right? And you know, if you're doing something, whether operating a ski resort or being an agriculturalist that you know is tuned around the way the temperatures used to be, mm -hmm. that's not going to be sufficient in a world where things are much, much warmer. And so, yeah, so it's going to require like, you know, adjusting where you plant things, adjusting how you operate your business. Like, so let me take it to the, the grape level because you're starting to, you know, model out some interesting ideas with grape varietals and maybe drought resistant, um, heat resistant, uh, Varietals. I don't know if you've done any work with rootstock ideas, more vigorous rootstocks, etc. What are some of the things that you've kind of modeled out? Or are we kind of still in this like experimental hunter gatherer phase? With yeah, that? I mean, you know, so certainly there, there's 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 people you know in France who are working on the kind of agrotech kind of angle, you know, where they're trying to breed kind of grape varieties that are more resistant to pests or yeah. mildews or um, or, or drought or, or heat. Um, and so that's kind of like one angle and that's the kind of traditional kind of biotech kind of route that a lot of other kind of crops have kind of taken. Mm. Um, you know, we're just starting to explore this idea of, I mean, leveraging the diversity, right? right? Um, 
you know, and you see this kind of more broadly in agriculture where, you know, I think in the U S like all the wheat, all the wheat is like four strains. Right. Right. Um, and that's because, you know, these were bred specifically for a purpose, which is to, you know, generate like, you know, be high yield kind of things, um, you know, provided that you can give it enough fertilizer and, and water and, and all these sorts of things. Um, but you know, when you have a crop that's all invested in kind of one thing, you know, and so like hyper specialized, then if other things change, then it can become a big problem. Yeah. Right. And so this is where kind of diversity I think can come in because, you know, there's other strains, there's other grape varieties that, you know, have not been widely exploited that, you know, hold potential, I think, to maybe start to fill in, fill in some of these gaps. So do you think there'll be a lot more blends in the future, a lot more co-plantation to like, yeah, to, to temper it? Basically making wine is, is you're dealing with chess pieces, right? And so let's say your Cabernet might be too ripe in this vineyard. If you have another site that, you know, can, is a lot cooler and can be blended in a certain way, you can, you can kind of get to where you want. Yeah, I think so. Like it wouldn't surprise me, for example, to see a, a shift from, you know, the kind of single grape wines that dominate a lot of areas like in the U S you know, to more of a kind of like French model, you know, where, you know, it's like you said, a blend. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, leaning on kind of different grapes, you know, to kind of account for shortcomings, you know, in other ones. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, I mean, there's, there's lots of potentials to, to make the industry resilient, right. There's the agricultural tech, there's, you know, the diversity of wine grapes and then there's, you know, just the winemakers kind of art, you know, which I think is, you know, maybe a bit underappreciated, um, you know, because having somebody who really understands these, these grapes, you know, can help kind of shepherd things you know, in the right direction. And when you talk about blends or French blends specifically, um, I think of the South of France and I think of places like the Southern Rhone Mediterranean areas here's a place where it's, you know, illegal to irrigate. What are they up against? I mean, uh, is, is there something that's going to have to be done one way or the other, either legally or? So, yeah, so this is a good question. Because on a, on, a, on a certain level there, they have a bit of an advantage. And you, you've kind of seen that, you can see this if you compare, um, you know, irrigated versus dry farm vineyards in places like California, right? And so, so there's one vineyard that, you know, I, I know through a friend he, most of his stock is dry farmed. And that actually like helped him during the first several years of the last big California drought because his vines, you know, have always been kind of stressed. And so they have very deep roots right. that, you know, allowed them during these really big droughts to kind of access those pools and actually kind of produce the fruit. You know, whereas if you're irrigating all the time, then, you know, your grapes are not going to put down you know, those, those deep roots because they're getting so much water or at least they're not going to go as, as kind of deep. Um, so, you know, if you're in an area that, you know, like the South of France near the Mediterranean that might, you know, be expected to get drier, then in the near term, this could be an advantage, you know, because these grapes are already kind of, you know, used to dealing with drought, you know, and so, you know, they might have access to pools that can buffer them a little bit. The question is, you know, at what point is that not enough? You know, is the climate going to change so much that you just have to irrigate because it's just impossible? So dry farming is, is, is a power, if it can be done well, is a very powerful tool. If you can get past that five year I, mark. I, I think so. At least it gives you some, it gives you some resilience. And do you think it's better to drop fruit for longer to focus the energy? It's not, not the economic way for sure, but to drop fruit longer to focus energy on the root systems? I mean, if... If this is your kind of goal and, you know, you can kind of take the hit um, with the idea that like you're kind of sacrificing production now with the idea that in the future your your vines are going to be much, much more resilient to kind of disturbances and things like that, then yeah, I mean, I think you can make the case. But at the end of the day, it's kind of any, it's up to the farmer kind of what they, you know, what their own kind of cost benefit analysis, you know, because these are, you know, these are, these are perennial crops that require an upfront investment before right. you see anything out of them. This is a kind of like a challenge that maybe like a farmer in the Midwest doesn't have, right? So like they can choose, like, you know, if, if wheat's not growing good in their field because it's depleted of something, next year they can just plant soybeans. 
not so much a big deal, but you know, you're waiting five to seven years before these vines even start producing. And so if you're not satisfied with what they are producing, you have to start all over. Have you done any work with own rooted stuff? Any research on something that instead of being grafted onto rootstock, uh, was, was own rooted in terms of its resilience? Oh yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, we haven't looked at that specifically. Um, yeah, there's not a lot. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's, there's well, certainly pockets. Yeah. I mean, Tenerife is the spot. I mean, there's, there's a lot of pockets throughout the, the world. Not a lot, but there, there are some, um, you know, parts of Portugal on sand and then isolated places that were never hit with phylloxera, like, uh, Tenerife, where you have a, a giant representative sample of own rooted vines. But how would you even model that out? I don't know. I mean, so, you know, for these things, you know, we, before we start modeling, we need data. So this is, this is the interesting thing because if you start, traditionally we've planted vinifera. We had a pet gnat last night from Pascaline that was, you know, a hybrid and a lot of people are planning, you know, on, you know, Native American varietals, which have their own rootstock. So Mm -hmm. the question becomes, is this of, uh, a valid progression going forward. I mean, the only extent that we've kind of looked at that is, you know, in our own analysis of like, you know, 400 years of wine harvest dates in, in, um, in France, you know, we looked at the kind of climate sensitivity before and after phylloxera to see, you know, it is the sensitive, you know, in these data sets, does the sensitivity to climate change, you know, with this kind of transition to, to the kind of American rootstock, um, at least in our data set, no, like, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it looks like, you know, the, the sensitivity of, of harvest to climate to basically temperature in the summertime. How accurate is this model? Is it 2020 or is it slightly nearsighted or like, um, I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're resolving, you know, or, you know, you can get about 50 to 70% of the variability. Okay. You know, by the standards of environmental data sets is pretty good. You know, there's obviously other things that can affect harvests and, 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 and variation. But, you know, by and large, you know, climate seems to really dominate, um, you know, both in the pre and, and kind of post phylloxera. Did era. you do studies of vine age? No, we didn't have that information. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of these factors that, you know, you know, would be great. And so even, you know, this is like an incredible to be continued, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, even finding vineyards that, you know, have a few decades of observations, including kind of some of this more detailed information, yeah. you know, I think could be really critical. Because, you know, one thing that's also kind of really interesting to me, just to kind of go off if you don't mind a little bit, is... The go po- off, man. You know... I'll the, go with you, I promise. But the potential for irrigation to even mitigate some of these temperature effects. You're irrigating, you're providing more moisture to the soils, of course. But if the plants and the soils are wet, then any energy that gets absorbed, instead of like going into heating up the plant... Uh, goes into evaporating the water. And so I think there's even this potential for irrigation to do more harm than good. Well, it depends on what you think. But if you, if you, for example, if you think that your grapes are getting too hot and they're ripening too early, then I think there's the potential for irrigation to kind of slow that down by kind of cooling down, you know, the grapes and, and maybe slowing things down a little bit. But, you know, to do this, you know, I kind of need, you know, you need information on, you know, from a vineyard that's irrigated and maybe one that's, that's, that's not to try to do some actual kind of comparison stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm, there's this uh, gentleman in Oregon, Junichi Fujita, and, and he's dry farming in Oregon, planting uh, Pinot Noir predominantly in McMinnville. And obviously we've had some of the hotter, more drought intensive situations and he's leaving a lot of grasses on top of that. And so he's had to be out there hand watering because you're just going to lose <coughs> vines mm-hmm. uh, if you don't. You yeah. Know, so that's the kind of the only way to get it done in the middle. And so you, you again, it's like trying to re- wean that vine um, to the, the perfect amount of stress where you're teaching it to be resilient without killing it essentially um, and taking that stress too far. I, I bring him up because it's really interesting, this kind of idea of permaculture, and this is a total gear switch. Um, but he's a big disciple of permaculture, which has been around since, since I believe, the 60s and rebooted in the 80s. Um, 
but I, I start to see more and more producers kind of adopting philosophies of permaculture. So, sorry, what, what do you mean by permaculture? Uh, I've heard the term before, I guess. Right. And so engineering, you know, the vineyard is essentially so you're, you're leaving a lot of competitive grasses and beneficial yeah. plants. Okay, yeah. um, and, you know, I, I, I had a conversation just strictly from a carbon standpoint from Ratan Lal. He, again, he was a Nobel Peace Prize winner for one of, one of the IPCC scientists and his area was soil. He claims that in the entire ag model, I mean, it's not vineyards, just ag in general, it's about 10% of CO2 um, is from ag and the, the vast majority was from tilling. Yeah. And then um, on top of tilling is the erosion and the wind of exposed soil. And so he says that number is actually closer to 20% of the aggregate, which is a massive, mm -hmm. massive number. I didn't know if you had any thoughts um, from a sustainability standpoint on leaving grasses if you can. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of work suggesting that, you know, these kind of diverse cropping systems can increase resilience. I mean, so often it's at the cost of production. Yeah, um, there's people listening to this podcast who are like, go fuck yourself, Brian, for sure. Be just based on the economic reality. And then there's some producers where the, 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 the soil is so poor, it's just not tenable, you know. Yeah. But if we're, if we're thinking about engineering a new vineyard or we're thinking about can we be mindful of this and maybe make adjustments toward that end? Yeah, you know, and, and I think, so, you know, I mean, this has been done a lot with, um, you know, like shade-grown coffee. You know, is a, I think is a, is a kind of classic example. Um, you know, and, and so, I, so I think it also depends on what you're kind of concerned about. So, you know, it can do things like, you know, reduced kind of pests by kind of breaking up the landscape a little bit. Like you can kind of mitigate kind of big pest outbreaks. You can do things, it's oftentimes better for the soil, you know, because you're not, you're not harvesting the grasses. And so, you know, that stock and that carbon is kind of staying there and it's, you know, increasing the water holding capacity of the soils and it's kind of keeping everything together. You know, the flip side is if you're in a place where it's really dry and you're worried about your vines getting enough water, you know, if you have all these grasses that are also competing for the water, you know, maybe that's not such a good thing. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's, you know, like most of these things, I think it's a bit of a complicated kind of Super question. Super complicated. And certainly if you're deciding and you, and you want to farm in a sustainable way, deciding where to do that, you know, if, if you're thinking of planting a vineyard, that's, that's a, a big task and a lot of food for thought mm -hmm. in order to, to decide where you want to set up shop. Lastly, you mentioned pests, which is interesting. So are you familiar with Pierce's disease? It's this um, kind of like a glassy wing sharpshooter that basically Southern California, you know, 100 plus years ago, used to outplant Northern California. And there was this, all of a sudden vines started dying. So they sent this guy Pierce in to figure out what it was. He couldn't figure it out. So they called it Pierce's disease. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in your mind, you're like, can you imagine if it would have been Cook's disease? Yeah. Yeah. Like, poor guy. But anyways, you know, Davis isolated, figured out it was the glassy wing sharpshooter. It lives in citrus orchards. Southern California, it, it, at, at a certain temperature, which is obviously very, very common at night, they, they can't really survive and there isn't huge pressure. So in Northern California, traditionally, there hasn't been a problem, but you've seen more outbreaks throughout Sonoma and Napa to the point where the nights especially are so much warmer, especially in southern Napa, because it's moderated by San Pablo Bay, whereas, you know, kind of northern Napa has a big diurnal shift. There's a lot more mm. cool nights. Oh, so, I see. So where the rubber meets the road, Steve Mathiason, um, Napa Cabernet producer, had has has had to pull out a lot of vines. Um, he has a lot of estate vineyards in in um, southern Napa. So he's gotten hit with glassy wing sharpshooter and really hasn't seen that development at this level before. And I know there's other producers throughout Sonoma and the Valley that are worried about the pressure that's ensuing. So what, what can you say uh, on warming specifically temperature temperatures at night that is either good or bad news? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, more generally, you know, it's temperature that keeps insects in check, right? Insects are, can control their body temperature. And so their activity is 
completely modulated by you know whatever the environment is doing right yeah. and it's mostly kind of temperature and so so yeah i mean this is just a more of a broader concern like you know as you start to get these climate climate shifting you know and particularly getting warmer like it opens up a lot of areas that previously were not suitable for populations of these pests, at least at a critical level. You know, we see in the eastern U.S., we're seeing it with ticks. You know, in other areas, we're seeing it with mosquitoes, you know, all these other kind of agricultural pests that are now able to move to higher elevations and, and more northern latitudes that previously were, were too cold. You know, even in just the areas where they actually are, a longer kind of growing season means oftentimes that they can have, you know, more generations in a given year. You know, which means higher reproduction and, and just larger populations, which again, you know, kind of increases the risk of exposure, you know, for yeah. for for plants and crops. Does some of the you know pollutive effects? Let's uh, talk about Roundup for a second. Does that does that bother you when you look at at globally? You're less than seven percent of vineyards are farmed organically. It's not just organics because organic producers they often pull more grasses and have copper issues in the vineyard, but most of the vineyards that are not farmed organically, Roundup is usually the major culprit <coughs> in that situation. And, and that's for weed control, right? Yes. Yeah. It's concerning, you know, like with pesticides, because evolution happens. There are numerous cases of these weeds or these insects that you're targeting developing resistances. And so... The bigger concern is, you know, are we going to get so invested in this without thinking about alternative ways to kind of mitigate it, you know, whether it means not using Roundup, you know, or using it more judiciously, but using some other kind of technique to try to like not have to lean on that so much anymore. It's an arms race, fundamentally. You know, you're, you're spraying Roundup, you're spraying pesticides to, to deal with, you know, weeds and these pests. And at the same time, those weeds and pests are developing resistance to the tool that you're using, mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, sometimes it can be hard to kind of stay, you know, ahead of that. The agriturismo we stayed at in Rufina, Italy, where they have their own kind of vineyard, and we took a bit of a tour. You know, he's, at least you know, he claims, he's, he's effectively organic, but they don't have the designation because... right. You know, if they have to, they will use Roundup or pesticides to save the crop. Mm -hmm. So it's one of these things where, like, you know, every every growing season they go into it with the idea that they're not going to use it. And, and it sounds like most summers they are able to get through without a problem. But, you know, they still have to pay their workers, you know, and they still need to you know, make their livelihood. And so they'll they'll use it. You know, and that's that's kind of a more kind of judicious use than like just spraying everything all the time, um, which is the sort of approach that can lead to these resistances building up. Did we make anybody thirsty with this podcast? <laughs> I'm thirsty. <laughs> are you? Wow, you are more resilient than just about anybody. <laughs> you will be around with the cockroaches. <laughs> this is all yeah, over my maybe. Bed. Yeah, Ben. Thanks so much, man. And uh, I look forward to. Uh, many moons from now seeing where your projects develop on the wine front. I'm glad that we could intersect and yeah, I see a, a really, really cool, interesting future and learned a lot from you. So thank you. Great. Well, thank you. Cheers. Cheers.